I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Meg Weston, a photographer and poet whose frequent subject is volcanoes. Based in Maine, she has traveled around the world, pursuing her desire, as she puts it, to witness the power and beauty of the earth and its raw processes of creation and transformation. Her poetry and photography express her connection to the earth in all its sensual, emotional, and spiritual power. Meg's images can be seen on her website, www.volcanoes.com. In 2020, she and Catherine Seitz co-founded the poetscorner.org, an online forum to bring together poets worldwide to bring community to the often solitary a transformational experience of writing poetry and prose. She also had quite an accomplished earlier life as a photographer, a president and COO of the U.S. Photo Finishing Division of Conaca Corporation, president of the Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram, vice president for university advancement at the University of Southern Maine, president and CEO of the University of Southern Maine Foundation, and chair of the board of trustees of the University of Maine System. So Meg Weston, it's an honor to welcome you to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with uh, finding out more about how you first got interested in volcanoes, and particularly in the photography of volcanoes, the poetry about volcanoes, and how did all that start? For me, it started in childhood, and I'm not sure exactly, but the the earliest uh, time I can pinpoint is in 1963, the volcano Surtsey erupted off the coast of Iceland. And there was an article about it in National Geographic. And my mother showed me that article. And it erupted on November 15th, 1963, which happened to be my 12th birthday. So it became my volcano, if you will. <laughs> and the photographs in that magazine were just, just caught my imagination. It was like magic. It was creating land where it never existed before. It came up from the depths of the ocean along the mid-Atlantic ridge and just built and built until it erupted out of the sea and became an island. And that's that's what I date back, you know, my first, I said to myself, I did school reports on volcanoes. I said, I always want to see one in eruption. So lots of kids are fascinated by volcanoes and dinosaurs. I just never lost that fascination. And of course, it's become a, a kind of standard school uh, project, you know, with the baking soda and the vinegar inside a yes. volcano. I, I think maybe your interest predates that tradition. I think it does. I never did that, to be honest. Um, but I, I wrote school reports and I swore that I would someday see one in eruption. And I think I was in my 20s when I started writing to this Smithsonian Scientific Alert Event Alert Network to ask if I could, where I could see a volcano in eruption. And they told me to subscribe. They had, this is in the days before the internet, before Google and all of that. And they said, subscribe to our newsletter because we 
report on volcanic eruptions around the world. So I did. Scientists around the world would send in their reports and they would publish it. And it would be like three months, maybe four months, five months after the eruption was over. But he also said there were a couple places in the world that you had greater chances of seeing an eruption. And one was Mount Etna or Stromboli in, the, uh, in Sicily or Mount Krafla in, in Iceland. As natural events go, it's much longer lasting than an eclipse because I know there are eclipse chasers, particularly solar eclipse, you know, they travel around the world. And of course, that's much more predictable. It is more predictable. We can hone in on exactly when that eclipse is going to happen. We can't control the weather about whether or not you see it. But the science of predicting a volcanic eruption is not an exact science. And so Iceland is actually one of the best places because they monitor ground movement all over Iceland. And um, there are things called harmonic tremors. They can measure the magma moving underground. And when that tremor begins to increase in frequency, they predict an eruption might happen. And so this most recent eruption in Iceland that happened in 2021, they watched this magma start moving through the Reykjans Peninsula. And they were pretty close to where they thought the eruption would happen, but the harmonic tremors stopped and they scientists finally said, oh, well, there probably isn't going to be an eruption. And they were on the news the same night saying that doesn't look like there's going to be an eruption when some other cameras were filming the eruption starting to happen. You, you, they don't, it's not an exact science yet. Right, so you've got false alarms and uh, things of that sort. And I, I think one of your experiences, I guess your, was it your first uh witnessing of, of a live volcano. I mean, the first actually being there when you went, it seemed like it was going to be called off, so to speak, if I remember right. Yeah, I did. I, so, so in 1980, I went to Iceland to Krafla and I took a week's vacation and there was nothing happening. Now the, the Krafla eruption, the Krafla fires, I think they call them, went on for years, but they would come and they would go. And that particular week I took vacation, nothing was happening. But in 1983, Kilauea started erupting, January 3rd, 1983. And I had a boss at the time that knew I was interested in volcanoes. And he put a clipping on my desk that morning. He used to bring me coffee and he put it on my desk before I got into work. And with that cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee that morning, there was a clipping that Kilauea volcano had begun to erupt. And so I walked into his office and said, do you mind if I take my vacation tomorrow? I wasn't gonna miss it again. And so I booked a flight to Hawaii I flew out to Hawaii. I was there on January 5th. We landed and we went immediately to the 
a newy, newy aviation with private flights that was the easiest way to get in to see the eruption in the location that it was. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, the eruption stopped. And I had no idea that, that it would start and stop that quickly or that once it stopped, you didn't, you couldn't see anything because the red lava turns black. And so there's nothing really to see. And I was so, so disappointed. We went to our hotel room. Here I am in Hawaii for the very first time in my life. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. You know, I'm sorry. Maybe you can't <laughs> say that on the radio. But anyway, I, I was so disappointed. But I'd given them my name and number. And my husband was hungry and I was tired. So he went out to get a pizza. And I went to sleep and the phone rang and it was the company and saying the volcano has started again. So I hung up the phone, I looked around, I realized Tim was gone. So I called the cab and I left him a note. <laughs> and I, I, and then the cab passed him. He was driving in as we were driving out. So we went together and we, we flew over the volcano that time. And that was when it was erupting in a curtain of fire. So it was not at the summit of Kilauea, but along the East Rift Zone. And this eruption of Kilauea has been the longest running. It kind of ended in 2018. So started in 1983 and ended in 2018 and went through a variety of different phases. But it started along this kind of crack in the earth, this rift in the earth that goes from the eastern tip to the summit of Kilauea. And it went for miles and just these lava flows that would fountain about 300 feet into the air. And from a plane, they look like campfires down below but then the lava would pour off from the crack and surround trees and consume them and flow. And one of the most fascinating things was to see it turn back on itself and flow back into the earth. It was an amazing sight to see. So this sounds a lot different from the uh, baking soda and uh, vinegar style volcano, which is just a hole at the top of a mountain, of a cone. I mean, it's interesting because I, I don't, I think most of us don't think of a volcano as coming uh, along a whole rift of a whole crack in the earth that could go on for miles, I, I imagine. Yeah. After time, it consolidated into a cinder cone, into one place and, and then built up in scale. And they called that the Pu'u'o'o cone after the Hawaiian O'o bird. Um, which I think is extinct, but there are many different kinds of eruptions. And there's the pyroclastic flow, which is more the traditional that you think of the explosive, it builds up, it's, it's heavy lava um, that has built up and then something happens that triggers an explosion. Mount St. Helens was like that. And that's when you get all that ash and, and uh, danger from that. You get ash, you get gases, toxic gases, in, and it can be quite 
deadly. Um, that's not the kind of volcano that I typically go see or, or try to go see. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm more fascinated by the effusive lava flows of a basalt kind of eruption. So you you can know in advance that it's not going to be uh, the explosive ash kind of volcano, or, or is there a danger that that could happen? Yeah, you do. Volcanoes have characteristics. I mean, they're not totally predictable. Clearly, there have been many different phases of the uh, Kilauea eruption. 2018 was really pretty amazing. I mean, it just started coming up out of the earth in different places, uh, in different subdivisions, cracking the roads open, consuming houses. But, but typically, Kilauea is a basalt volcano, and it's uh, lava flows that are can be very gentle. They can be gushing rivers but they're not typically the pyroclastic flow that something like Mount St. Helens would be. But it sounds like from your poetry that your nephew uh, imagined that the danger was maybe even greater than it was. And uh, I thought this might be a good moment to read from your poem. Uh, my nephew asks, if you knew you were dying, would you jump into a lava lake? <laughs> Just what a great title. I would love to read that poem. That it's one of my favorites. And my nephew at the time was, um, I think it was around 12 or 13 years old when we had this conversation. So my nephew asks, if you knew you were dying, would you jump into a lava lake? A tongue of lava licking the shore, gulping the ocean in great breaths photographed in a magazine. My mother once showed me Circe, an island named for the Norse god of fire and emerging from under the sea on my 12th birthday. I tell this story so often that the tale is knitted together with threads of fiction and memory. Now so intertwined, I can no longer pull them apart smoke and incantations, a spell of land rising from under the sea until the island claimed its right to be on the surface of the earth. My mother built a fire on the beach and told us stories by its light while the smoke wandered through the sky and sparks flew like fireflies in the night. She wore the sweater she'd knitted three times over for my father, who still never wore it. She said she was like Penelope. This was years before I knew Penelope was the long-suffering wife of Ulysses, and I thought she was just another bad knitter like my mother. A chemist and an artist, she threw pots on a kick wheel in the basement and painted them with glazes mixed and fired in the kilns of her imagination. Would you climb into a coffin and slide into the kiln of a crematorium? I respond to my nephew. My mother was young when she died, her heart ripped apart by love's disappointments and struggling to claim her own right to be. Yet the seed was planted for my future odyssey to travel the world 
to witness an eruption, to capture its essence in a photograph. That year, we went to Iceland after her death, after Eldfell's explosion. There was nothing to see but the village of Heme buried in ash and the island of Circe beyond reach out to sea. No, really, my nephew persists, but why not jump into the crater? Isn't that the ultimate climax for someone who loves volcanoes? I flew to Hawaii when Kilauea burst forth in a curtain of fire like campfires of war, stretched along miles of earth torn apart, reft and bereft by forces that couldn't be mended. Shrouded in smoke, liquid fire, consuming the landscape and folding it over, black on black forms braided in ropes stretching down to the sea. Exploding in steam, sparks thrown through the air, the act of creation extending the land. Don't you risk death every time you run off to photograph an eruption? My nephew wants to convince me of this. Last year, I went to Iceland when the earth opened up on the edge of a glacier, melding fire and ice. I flew next out to Heime, climbed the old cinder cone, and perched atop Eldfell, looked beyond out to sea. Over the years, waves have softened the edges. Birds nest on its shores, green graces, horizons. Circe has changed now, but the rat-shaped islands still squatting, 50 years later still fighting the waves and claiming its place. That's different, I tell him, wondering how to explain life lived close to the edge is not choosing to die. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I, I, I assume that after that, uh, after reading that poem, he stopped uh, <laughs> persisting. You know, that particular nephew has never gone to see a volcano with me yet. Um, my other nephew has. Uh -huh. Maybe the, the first nephew is too scared. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. So I'm wondering if we could uh, just diverge a little bit and talk about poetry and photography. The cliche is that a picture is worth a thousand words, and I don't know if maybe a poem is worth a thousand associations. What have you found as you've explored the expressive potential of photography and poetry, and how do they complement and enhance one another? It's interesting. I started out as a photographer. I mean, I started out photographing volcanoes and somewhat documentary, but more I'm just fascinated by the the textures and the sensuality and, and organic forms that it that are created in the lava flows. And so it's the imagery. And as I later on came to poetry, poetry is a form that makes use of the images, even more so than prose, because poetry relies on the image to, to move it forward and through and to convey the emotion, if you will. 
so I find that they're very complementary. And I often will think about a photograph in my head when I'm writing a poem. And um, maybe a photograph I've taken or a photograph that I've seen. And so sometimes it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing a project now for a, a land trust. And I, they, this organization pairs poets with land trusts and you write poems for the land trust. And then there's a reading and there's an anthology. And, and I realized that I can't separate the two. I go out to this place and I want to photograph and I want to write. So I find they, they work together, but in different ways. And of course, you know, the, the um, you know, you, you have the metaphor of the volcano, which we've talked about. And I think of poetry as, as capturing a kind of emotional moment in a way. I mean, it's not necessarily a single moment, but it, it's, it's a kind of, um, it captures it in a way that's, that feels almost like an encapsulated nugget of, of experience. <laughs> which is a little different from pose, you know. It does, and it stands for so much more. I, I think you've really put your finger on it, that that image or that emotional nugget or that moment, then it's a metaphor or it stands for something bigger than itself. And when it, when it works, when it has resonance, it might mean something different to you, but my very particular experience is going to resonate with something else in, in you, the reader. Right. So it, it's a kind of uh, telepathy, but with an overlay of one's own experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good description. So it's, it's not just a direct telepathy. It's not just a reproduction of the other person's experience. It's always filtered through the yeah. reader's experience. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, along those lines, you, you have uh, a po another poem uh, that I'd like you to read about this, which really tells the story of power and loss together in one poem. And that's the Highway 137, The Red Road, if you wouldn't mind reading that one. Oh, great. Let me pull that one up. That's, that's one of my favorites. So you, you pick some good ones, Stuart. Thank you. Highway 137. The Red Road. Lean with me into the curves, he instructed before we began my first motorcycle ride. The glee of children from the 60s, now almost 60. On the Red Road from Kalapana to Kapoho, my arms wound tight around his waist. We swerved through each bend my hair whipping against my face. Glimpses of ocean ravaging black lava, cliffs, mile marker 13 flash by, blue sky, blue water, red road reflected, my blue eyes gleaming. At night he whispered, I am not your true love, but I didn't believe him. Enticing scents of sulfur flew in the bedroom window 
inhabiting the arms of my dreams. I flew back home to Maine before the white Lexus veered into a turn and cut in front of his Harley, catapulting the bike and body into that blue sky forever, changing the geography of my life. Years later, I watched the evening news as a wall of lava two stories high snaked across Highway 137, halting traffic, consuming cars, houses, and mile marker 13. You really get a sense of the power and the devastation. Beauty and devastation all, to, all in one poem. So true. And, and that's the volcano goddess, Pele, is the goddess of creation and destruction. Some of the volcanic soils are the richest soils in, on the earth. And that's why people build up civilizations around them, um, like Vesuvius and Italy. And um, it can be very catastrophic. And you had to travel very far to find some live volcanoes. And you make a point that uh, the geology of Maine, where you live, uh, is very old, that there's been no volcanic activity for 500 million years. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite uh, kind of terrain in a way, you know, this very old, old uh, geology. Yeah, you wrote, uh, as I trace the lines of magma intrusions with my bare toes on Maine's rocky shores, I think of what lies below the surface of a life, the hotspots that shape and form the geology of my life. Beautiful, beautiful. Hmm. I worked on that during the pandemic because I wasn't traveling and I wasn't going anywhere to see volcanoes. And I said, you know, I got to see what's in my backyard. And this granite that Maine is Maine's coast, and I live along the coast, is made up of is volcanic. These are these are mm -hmm. magma plutons that were beneath the earth at one time or another. So I was trying to tap into some of that energy. I mean, Maine is beautiful. It's just not active lava flows. No, and not many really. people would say they're grateful for that. <laughs> So did you feel a sense of danger flying over, not into, but over <laughs> over a volcano? And I imagine this is in like a small plane. Yeah, but I did that, that very first time because we took off from the Hilo airport and it was clear. It was at night. You know, you could see the lights as you left the inhabited zone. And then there was a point at which we entered the clouds and we couldn't mm -hmm. see what was ahead. And very shortly thereafter, you could begin to smell sulfur. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I, we could crash into this. I didn't know what to expect. And I thought, well, that's okay. If I die, I will have died doing the thing I most wanted to do in life. And that's okay with me. So, and of course, we weren't in danger of dying. And as we approached, the the clouds cleared and you could see the see the lava flows below. 
I think that I haven't been in any real danger. I've been places where I've been very close to a lava flow, like within feet away photographing. You get mesmerized by this. I've never taken someone with me that isn't awestruck by a volcano, but you get mesmerized. And I've stood there with my tripod and my camera in front of this lava flow, very gentle flow photographing for maybe most of an hour when I started feeling dizzy and had to sit down and had to move away. And, you know, it was the heat that was too much. So you do have to be careful and there are fumes you have to be careful of. And I know in Iceland, they are not as restrictive. This current eruption, they have t-shirts now, don't walk on the lava, you know. Walk on the lava. Yeah, it's 2000 degrees. It, you, you don't wanna fall through a thinly formed crust and- Oh my goodness. That reminds me that my daughter, when she was little, had a game called Hot Hot Lava. And you had to pretend that the floor was all lava and you had to, you know, walk on things that were above the floor. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I never heard of that game. I have walked where my um where my sneakers started to melt. You uh, know? Wow. And you could tell because you felt it or you smelt it? <laughs> Both. I, well, I didn't really so much feel it you could smell it and you could see the tracks they would start to leave tracks i'm trying to imagine the first person who flew over a volcano not knowing if it was safe or not you know because the the hot air i would imagine would buffet the could potentially buffet the plane a little bit and oh yeah the the hot air it's very disruptive you know because they um i forget what they're called but you know you get the, the thermals you know Thermals, it must yes. make it hard to uh, to keep a, your hand steady for a photograph. You have to wait for that turbulence to end. Well, you know, depending on the plane you're flying in, and I lately it's been helicopters because you can really get lower and hover more. But there's a great quote from Mark Twain because in the 1800s he was um, visiting Kilauea, and at the summit of the crater, uh, the Halimaumau crater on the top of Kilauea. And I think it goes something like the smell of sulfur is at, is sweet to a sinner like me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So perhaps you'd like to read the poem, and I, I forgive me if I butcher the pronunciation, Fagradalsfjall. Uh, pilgrimage how did i do all right you did pretty well these these icelandic names are really difficult i i call it fagradasfjall and i may be mispronouncing it myself i don't know i was there for the eyjafjallajökull yukut eruption that one of the tests of whether you are a foreigner or not is can you pronounce that and I, I come close, closer than many, but not. So this, this one has gone by, this volcano has had many names. This is the volcano that's 
erupted in 2021 in Iceland. And the other name that's quite commonly heard is Gelda, Gelda Gadalur or something like that. But that means the the Valley of the Gelding. <laughs> and um, this one means beautiful mountain. So I, I like this name a little bit better. So Fagradasfjall Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Noun, a long journey undertaken as a quest or for a votive purpose. My life has been a pilgrimage of sorts. This obsession with volcanoes since childhood, to see the earth in liquid fire, to witness primal movement, beginning and ending of time. I climbed the mountain, head bowed, paying attention to the narrow path beneath my feet, my boot treads worn from many other climbs. I fall on my knees, they're scraped and bruised before the steep ascent begins. An old man passes me, cane in hand, white hair blown back, he's done this countless times before. Not here, perhaps, but other mountains, other quests to see the earth anew, a different view. A woman with a baby in a pack in front, my camera's in my backpack, my tripod slung across my shoulder. We each have burdens carried on this journey, this vow to feel the heat and see the world aflame. A line of people, multi-hued, move slowly up. The slope is steep, climbing higher. The sun goes lower. The clouds now shaded orange in the purple twilight. Earth's pulse visible in the plume that rises to the sky. Reaching the ridge, the people settle, some spreading blankets, some moving closer, all watching the lava build up in jagged edges of black cinder cone until it spills into a river and thrusts in the air with unspeakable force. The trek going down descends into darkness. Sleet and rain wash us clean for the final half mile. How long have you been writing poetry? I've been writing poetry for about the last 10 years. I did an MFA in creative writing at Leslie, um, graduating in 2008, but it was in creative nonfiction, and I'd written a memoir, which is um, about my life with volcanoes and traveling to see volcanoes. And each chapter has a different aspect of volcanoes and they are kind of metaphoric for different pivotal times in my life. But after I graduated, so I did that in my 50s, after I graduated, I went back to work full time and I found I didn't really feel like I had the time to work on prose. And I started learning the craft of poetry. I started writing poetry and studying with different poets. And, and it's been my focus since I retired. And I retired in January of 2020. And I published a chapbook of poems 
that summer and I've just completed a, a manuscript, a full collection of poems that I'm sending out now for publication, hopefully someplace. But I really love it. I, I just love how a poem possesses you and it becomes part of, and it becomes a puzzle and a conversation I feel like between the unconscious and the conscious mind. And so it, it, I feel like it, it becomes this possession until it's done. And, and it's a smaller chunk of, of effort compared to prose, I would say. I mean, certainly compared to even a short story, let alone a novel. So how would you describe uh, creative nonfiction? How would you uh, define that? Well, some people describe it as lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, creative nonfiction is writing nonfiction using literary techniques of fiction. So it, typically a memoir is creative nonfiction, but there are other forms. And so you create scenes. You, If you've read a memoir, that it's not a person's autobiography. It's not a series of facts and circumstances. It's a slice of life and it's told in a series of scenes. And a typical memoir has both who you are at the moment, the setting, the scene, and maybe as a child, but also your reflection from who you are at the point of writing it too. So there are kind of multiple points of view that are contained within that. And that's, so there might be dialogue, there might be dramatic moments, things like that, that are contained within basically a nonfiction work of prose. From your bio, it sounds like photography was really the main thing for a long, long time. The poetry is the more recent one, and that's really become, I, I think, uh, taking over much more of your time. I shouldn't say taking over makes it sound negative, but uh, you're devoting more and more time. Um, so I thought this might be a good uh, segue to talk about the Poets Corner and how that got started and what it's like. And it sounds like it's really growing from what I saw on the website. It, it's exciting to me. So I retired in January 2020, and I thought that I would be traveling and doing all these things. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and we were sheltered in. And I... Uh, once I got through my reaction of this isn't fair and I don't want to be here, <laughs> I really decided, well, what a wonderful opportunity. One of the reasons I retired was to devote more of my time to my own creative pursuits. I was running a college dedicated to creative people, teaching photography, filmmaking, creative writing, book arts. And so I was the administrator in charge of creating this creative space for others to be creative. And I wasn't spending much time on my own work. So I thought, what a great opportunity. And I devoted myself. I started taking some classes and online on Zoom and um, 
writing every day and but it's a lonely process and so i created a writing group and i asked somebody if they wanted to do this reading series with me and um catherine said yeah she'd like to and we started it with just like let's keep it simple and once a month we'll do a reading and let's invite poets that we know and we started that way and we invited those poets and they invited people to come listen to them and then it grew from there and it has quite a following i think we have 1700 people on our mailing list today for our last reading which was fabulous and and all of them are recorded on the poetscorner.org but this was a reading about Rilke by and facilitated and put together by a man named Mark Burroughs, who is a, a world-renowned, uh, award-winning translator of Rilke and a poet himself. And he brought in these other scholars and poets to read some of Rilke's poems and talk about his work. And we had Padre Gotwama, who does the Poetry Unbound podcast was on there and um, and a woman from Australia and a woman from California. And we had 750 people sign up for that reading. It was amazing. Usually about half of them actually show up. So maybe around 350 were, were there and then it's recorded and on the website. So it's and from all over the world and it's a wonderful way to connect to people yeah and speaking of which i mean one of the ways that seems to be different than other readings i've i've uh, come across is that it's a regular event and it's a, it's building a community it's not just a, a once in a while kind of thing but it's it has a regularity to it and people can uh, feel part of something it does i mean that's our hope for it is that it builds community and um you know it gives a platform for people some people haven't read their poetry ever before you know we have an open call or an open mic and some people are very well-known poets or or writers we had natalie goldberg talking about haiku and her her book about haiku we we've had just some incredible speakers richard blanco's been on it kevin pilkington Tess Taylor, Rick Barrett, these are poets that are published and well-known. And then there are poets that are from next door that are wonderful poets. It's really fun to do and to give all those voices a place to come together at different times. The one we're doing next weekend, Sunday, November 14th, is on ekphrastic poetry. So we partnered with a local art gallery that was having a, an exhibition that they wanted to call Poetry in Motion, which is paintings and photographs. And we invited poets to submit their poems in response to the artwork. And they could see the artwork online or go to the gallery to see it. And we got 84 different poems submitted. And this afternoon, I have to select 
10 of them to read. <laughs> That's the hard part. We, we had an event here in Las Cruces some years ago where, where that combined sculpture, dance, and music. And so it started out with a, a sculpture, an abstract sculpture that someone uh, composed a piece to, and then there was a dance also. I love that interweaving of the arts. I think that there's a real power to it and that people respond to different art forms in different ways. And some people are very musically attuned and some people are tuned to poetry and some people are not, you know, some people respond to a painting in a different way. And when you combine them, you, they reverberate. What's unusual about you, I think, is that you not only have such a powerful creative side, but you also have the skills of an administrator and an organizer. What a wonderful combination. It's not, not typical at all. It served me well. I mean, I, I've spent most of my career in business, and uh, <laughs> there is something very creative about business. I mean, one of the things I love about the the poet's corner is the creation of something and seeing it grow. Right. And obviously that's a nonprofit if it's a .org, right? Yes. It's not a 501c3 nonprofit it's because I didn't want to get too complicated with it. <laughs> you know, at least at this point, it's simply, it is. It's, it's not there to make money. It, cost me money at this point. But we are going to have a chapbook contest with prize beginning in January. And that's pretty exciting. And it will be printed on letterpress and beautiful printing. And so we're doing some fun things with it. So how much of your time is that taking to organize all that? My goal is to have it not be a full-time job so that I have time for my own creativity. So I'm not recreating what I retired from. Meaning it is, it is now? So it comes and goes. This week is really busy because I'm selecting poems and reading poems and preparing for the reading. But most months, maybe I'll spend a day a week if that on it. And it's a, a labor of love. And I love talking to the people they like you are doing. You know, that's part of the joy of it for me is not just having people read their poems, but being able to talk to them about their poems and their creative process and all of that. Right. Connecting with people with your own work. I mean, if you published a book of poetry and, and photography, and do you do that together or separately? So I've published a um, self-published a chapbook of poems called Letters from the White Queen. And my mother wrote me a series of letters my first semester away from college, and she signed them all, The White Queen or WQ. And she died shortly thereafter, and she asked me to save the letters, and I didn't find them again for 10 or 12 years. And I've always wanted to do something with them. So a couple of years ago, I started writing poems in response to some of these letters. And this book is excerpts from her letters and the poems I've written in response to them. 
so I self-published that limited edition of 50 copies, which sold out beautiful hardcover books. I'm just about to go back to a second printing of 100 copies in softcover that I'll be able to sell for a little bit less than that. And then I'm working on this, or I have worked on this full collection manuscript. I've done a few books on blurb that combine the photography and writing, but nothing recently. That's sort of one of the places I started out. I'd like to do more, and I'm not sure where I'll go with that. I really can envision one with the volcano poems and some of the volcano photography that I've done. Yeah, that would make that would make sense. And and the PDF that you shared with me, was it Magna Intrusions? Is that the, uh, yes. the title? That that's not published yet. That's not yet published. Yeah, I've just been sending it out to open reading periods at different small um, independent presses and different contests, particularly ones that are for first collections of poems. It's a whole process in itself this whole process of publication that I'm learning about. So we'll see. Well, I think we have time for another poem. Uh, I thought maybe one that's not about volcanoes, just to see some of the range. And I particularly like the, the chess game, the one about your father. Uh, chess is important to me also. I have had uh, an interview early on and delving in with my nephew, Lior Lapide, who was the K through nine and K through through twelve national champion and runs a chess academy in Denver. So it'll be an honor for me to hear uh, your poem about that includes uh, chess as one of its topics. That's great. I'd love to read that, Stuart. And um, my husband is and his son. His son is a great chess player. My husband's really working on his chess. Game. So there's been a lot of chess conversation in our house lately. <laughs> this is a great poem to, to choose. Thank you. Chess Match. He played in competitions, blindfolded against the clock, and won. 30 games simultaneously, and he won. He won in the chess club, the regional tournament, he strove to be a master of the game. I heard the clink of ice before he closed his study door, lit his pipe and studied the board while smoke billowed out into the hall. I hid in my room, watchful for his heavy footstep on the stair that meant he'd been interrupted and came out looking for someone to blame. On rare occasions when he had the patience to teach me the game, I learned the moves. The opening gambit, moving my pawn two spaces forward, and then my knight two up, one to the side. He took my pieces one by one while I retreated from the final threat. A bishop, a rook, or a queen moved into place my pieces strewn aside, my defenses crumbled, and I could see the checkmate in his next move. The chess tournament dinner was a gala event. 
He'd earned the trophy and my mother insisted that I come. I was 16, maybe 17, and wore a dress I'd made that made my father raise his heavy eyebrows, frown and look away. A white satin miniskirt, spaghetti straps, Eugene McCarthy for president buttons printed on the fabric. Long hair trailing down my back, I danced the twist all night. I danced with every older man that asked. At home that night and every night he shut the door, let smoke seep out while I went off and marched against the war. We didn't meet across the checkered squares to play by any rules he knew. He loved his chess, controlling pieces across the board. I learned the moves, but never any strategy except defense. I didn't understand the queen was the most valuable piece, free to move wherever she wanted, fast or slow, while the king was constrained to one square at a time. Well, that's the, uh, the darker side of the chess metaphors, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or the darker side of my father. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Wow, I mean, it's so suggestive. You know, uh, I have to restrain myself as a psychologist from asking too, too much, you know, because it's so suggestive of memory and relationship and disappointments and uh, rejection and, uh, oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, you know, my father was a wonderful man. He died very young also at 54, I think. And he he was a master of chess and not a master of his emotions. And he didn't express emotion except for anger. And so he was a hard man to get to know. I knew he loved me. I was his favorite, uh, you, know? <laughs> you know, and he was a brilliant man, um, clearly, you know, not just in the chess, but not not in affairs of the heart, if you will. More head than heart, that's for sure. Yes. Not, not, not uh, altogether balanced that way. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I imagine he was very proud of you, uh, even though he died young. Well, uh, you know, he died maybe before. I, I guess I had started work. He he died in 1980. So he was 54 and I was 30. So I had started my career, but I hadn't achieved the, the levels of success that I achieved in my career, um, running companies, the rest of it. And I think I was always trying to impress my father, you know, <laughs> always trying to get those straight A's. Right, right. Well, if he's looking down on you, he's probably very impressed by now. <laughs> I think he would have mellowed, you know, as we all do as we age, you know, and value valued different things. He had a second family and I think he he was a much softer man for those young boys that he had. Well, that kind of intensity of, of emotion is a um, good grist for, uh, for poetry, I would think. It is, it is. You know, everyone who has had a childhood has plenty to write about. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's all of us, right? 
That's right. Unless we're Athena, you know, born out of the head of our parent. All right. Well, on that note, uh, it's just been a delight to to have you on the show, Meg. So Meg Weston, the photographer and poet of volcanoes, uh, uh, former uh, executive uh, in uh Conica Corporation, among other places, the co-founder of the PoetsCorner.org, an online forum for bringing poets together worldwide. I mean, just what an amazing life you've had so far. And uh, thank you so much for coming on Delving In. Oh, thank you for having me. It's just been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.